This is the Author Biz Podcast with Stephen Campbell, session number 20. Welcome to the Author Biz Podcast. I'm Stephen Campbell, and each week I'll bring you interviews, information, and insights focused on the business of being an author. You can find the episode show notes, links to everything mentioned in the show, and lots more information at theauthorbiz.com. Greetings and welcome to The Author Biz, the Monday podcast focused on delivering actionable information to help you run your business as an author. Wherever you are, however you listen, thanks for spending some of your time with me today. My guest in this episode is editor, publisher, literary agent, and writer, Sean Coyne. Sean spent several years of his life working as a senior editor at one of the big New York City publishing companies, and he's worked with some of the biggest names in the publishing business. In this episode, Sean shares what life is like for a senior editor at a big publisher, what his responsibilities were, and some of what goes into creating a breakout book. There are some fun looks behind the curtain of big-time publishing, and then we get into the world of publishing today. I mean, we're in a very, very young place in book publishing in that there's opportunities for writers today that they never had before. It's all internet-based, and it's all about building your audience and being genuine and authentic and working on your craft and building up you know, a fan base of people who actually care about what you write, as opposed to trying to please an agent who's trying to please an editor who's trying to please Barnes & Noble, who's trying to please stockholders. As you'll hear in the interview, Sean practices what he preaches. He's helped to build the online platforms for his business partner, Stephen Pressfield, and now he's doing it for himself with his new internet home, thestorygrid.com, where he's distilling his years of experience editing stories into a process we all can use to improve our own storytelling skills. Today's episode is sponsored by Audible.com. I've been an Audible.com listener for years now, and one of the great things about an Audible subscription is that it allows you to consume books while you're doing other things. Over this past weekend, I drove from Naples to Deerfield Beach for a local Mystery Writers of America event, and I spent the entire two-hour drive, both ways I might add, lost in what Renee Rodman a fabulous audiobook narrator, and my guest in Episode 4 calls A Movie for the Mind. For listeners of the AuthorBiz podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a no-obligation 30-day trial of their service to give you a chance to try listening to A Movie for the Mind yourself. You can sign up for your trial at www.audibletrial.com slash authorbiz and download your free audiobook from over 150,000 titles. I'll also have a link to this offer in the show notes at the AuthorBiz website. My guest today is editor, publisher, literary agent, and writer, Sean Coyne. Over the course of his publishing career, Sean has edited and published books with gross revenues in excess of $150 million in North America alone. Some of you may have learned of Sean the way I did through his long collaboration with Stephen Pressfield. Sean is also Stephen's literary agent, manager, and the two of them partnered to form Black Irish Books. But today we're going to talk about Sean's newest project, where he's sharing his analytical method of editing stories of every genre. He calls this method the story grid. 
Sean, welcome to the Author Biz. Thanks so much, Steve. It's it's great to be here. It's uh, it's great to finally meet. Uh, tell us the uh, the story behind the Story Grid. Well, um, the Story Grid is essentially like a twenty year process of being an editor in, in mainstream book publishing as well as independent book publishing, and essentially. It came about because when I started out in the business back in the early 1990s, you know, this is when we had uh, typewriters on, on the table instead of computers, there was no real systematic approach to teaching somebody how to edit a book. So the way it worked is that if you were lucky, and I was lucky, um, you would get a job with a very talented editor who would, over time, teach you the craft of, of how they did. And the editor that I worked with, who was the most influential when I was younger, was a woman named Jackie Farber. And Jackie um, edited some of the some of the best books that Elmore Leonard ever published. One was called Rum Punch, which turned out to be Jackie Brown, the Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. And also she, uh, she edited Pronto, too, which was the introduction of Raylan Givens, which ended up being a television series called Justified. And at that time, I was the assistant editor to Jackie. So Jackie brought me in, and she would hand me, you know, these these pieces of gold from Elmore and Leonard and say, read it, tell me what you think, and we can give notes to, to you know, Dutch. He used to call himself Dutch. Mm-hmm. Um, ourselves. So, you know, she would bring in, and we would go through it. And over time, I would learn those sort of skills from individual editors. But after I got away and I became my own editor, what I found is that in the industry, there's a lot of secrets. Um, There's sort of, you know, people a little bit hesitant to share their, you know, point of view in the way they do particular things, and especially in book editing. Um, So I was sort of left in this place where I had to learn how to do it myself. And so like any, anything like learning how to you know, be a carpenter or learning how to lay bricks, you start with the classics. So, you know, I read Plato and I read George Pulte's book on the 36 Dramatic Situations. I read Norman Friedman's work on, um, you know, the quest sort of narratives. And most influentially, um, and I will say that uh, the man I'm about to talk about is a client of mine in my literary agency, so just full disclosure there. <laughs> um, Robert McKee was a major influence in my in, in my coming to what became the story grid. So, um, you know, it's, it's sort of one man's 22-year journey to learn how to make practical story principles. Um, I'm sorry, um, story principle is very practical. So it's to take theory and make it really, really practical and applicable to any kind of manuscript. And you've done this, you, you've worked with this over the course of years, you've developed this process, and I've seen you actually have posted on your website, you did a story grid, sort of a, an image, a hand-drawn image for Silence of the Lambs. And it's fascinating. I printed it out and showed it to my wife, and she's like, oh, my God. (laughs) And I was was trying to explain it to her, and I said, I'm not really going to be able to explain it to you until the book comes out, and I really can understand it. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like trying to explain, you know, when I first first showed it to Steve Pressfield, because I didn't know whether or not this was like the rantings of a madman or if people would actually be interested in my process. 
so I went to my good friend Steve Pressfield and I showed it to him and his jaw dropped and he said, geez, this is like, you know, the plans for building a rocket ship. Um, and he really loved it. And the reason why he loved it is that so many people, um, you know, they really don't understand the craft and the hard work and the dedication behind every single scene and every single piece in the novel. So when Steve saw it, he was like, oh my gosh, I want to have this thing and made business cards of it so that I can show people what I actually do. So, um, so it, it, the story grid itself is sort of this wonderful kind of, it's like looking at a novel on one piece of paper, like, um, like seeing a really, and you can follow the actual story um, of the Silence of the Lambs, and you can do this for any novel. Or, you know, originally, as we were talking about, it's it's an editing technique. Mm-hmm. So, um, as an editing technique, it it begins this way. Um, the first thing an editor has to do is to is to read a manuscript, and then he's got to make notes. And what I found myself doing over the years was instead of making generic notes about the totality of the book from the offset, what I would do is I would take the manuscript and each scene, um, I would take a stapler and I would staple a couple of pages together that comprised the scene. And then I would write down on a, a, just a regular Excel spreadsheet, you know, scene one, you know, man walks into a bar, scene two, waitress serves, you know, man at the bar, a drink. And I'd literally do that for every single scene in the book. And that way I could say to myself, well, how are these scenes working together? Are they building uh, up to a major, you know, climactic moment? Are they fizzing? Which scenes can I throw out? Which scenes should I put back in? What about the characterization? So I would look at um, a manuscript from a very, very micro point of view. So that's well, that's sort of what I define as what I call the story grid spreadsheet, which is not the same thing as the final story grid. Mm-hmm. But using the story grid spreadsheet, then I could ask myself very large questions um, about the the total story itself. And from that, I could create what I call a full scap page. Um, and I got that from Steve Pressfield, who's, who, who kind of coined that term. But a full scap page is essentially boiling down an entire novel into an outline that you could have on one legal size, yellow full scap piece of stationery. And so with the full scap page and with the spreadsheet, what I found is, hey, wow, if I plot this on a, on a large graph and I show the movements of the values in the storytelling, this could be really kind of fascinating. And to be able to see, oh, gee, where did the obligatory scene where, you know, the, the hero at the mercy of the villain scene, where, where did Thomas Harris put that scene in The Silence of the Lambs? Wouldn't it be cool to just be able to look at a piece of paper and see, oh, there it is, that's in scene number 52. Oh, wow. And what about, well, you know, when was the first time he added a clock? to, you know, the storytelling. Oh, that would be in scene number 26. So all of these little pieces together form what I call the story grid. And as you know, Steve, I'm, I am going to be publishing a book with, with Steve Pressfield, with my company, Black Irish Books. And we plan on having this out, hopefully, you know, within uh, January, February of 2015. 
That is going to be great because I've, I've been reading your website, which is thestorygrid.com. The, the image that I mentioned is on the website in the resources section. And there are some other yes. things there as well. But just being able to print out the diagram that you were just talking about with all the scenes and to see the way it was done for this one particular book was so illustrative that it, that it was amazing. And the things you're talking about now, obligatory scenes. There, there's a post on your website about the need for the obligatory scene and, and why they have to be there and and how if you don't do it, you're hurting yourself. There's there's a, sometimes a sense that, that we all have that we want to be creative and, and we don't want to follow a script, but there are certain things that if you leave them out, the story's not going to be the same or, or the reader is not going to get the same experience with it. And you've you're creating on this website just post after post that that's building on this information that's helping to walk us through your process and uh, I'm just finding it amazing. I, I subscribe to the email list and it is absolute must read for me as soon as I see the email pop into my inbox. <laughs> oh, that's good to hear. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, Steve, where I'm where I'm kind of coming from with the whole thing, and a lot of. You know, a lot of my friends will say, what are you doing, you know, giving away all this material and you're not, you know, you're not winning, so you have the book and then you can do a big press on it. And the thing is, is that I've been in publishing for 22 years. And, you know, as before, before we, we started our conversation here, we had a quick chat. And in it, you know, I was thinking the other day and a couple of, uh, you know, friends of mine over the past year have have left the earth, as they say. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm not a young man anymore. I have 22 years experience. I've got this thing in my head. Um, you know, wouldn't it be good to, to, to leave it behind in some form that myself at 20, you know, three or 24 years old, 20 some years ago, could find and not, you know, be able to, to read it and enjoy it and to figure things out. Because as I said earlier, when I started, there was no systematic approach to how to learn how to edit a book or to be a book editor. So, you know, what I'm doing at, at storygrid.com is I'm essentially posting uh, quite a bit of my book. Probably mm -hmm. it'll end up being 90% of the book. And the reason why I'm doing that is... Um, there's a lot of people who are, who are like me, you know, they're, they're assistant editors and young editors in book publishing who are making less money than you can even imagine. And they just cannot afford whatever it's going to cost to buy my book. So um, as, as an old salt, I figure it's my responsibility to be able to help them out, to teach them how to edit. And also coincidentally, people who, are, are looking to write a book, um, there's no better way to learn how to write a book than to learn how to edit one. Um, and all the principles that I talk about on the site are completely applicable to the writer. Um, in fact, you know, the writer and the editor should share the same toolbox. And so what the story grid is, it's just a big toolbox for anybody interested in writing a story. And that story can even be nonfiction because great nonfiction tells a story as much as a novel does. And hopefully the story grid will tell a little story itself from the beginning to the end. I mean, that's my intention is to keep people interested, you know, from week to week and from post to post 
by not being didactic and throwing down, you know, oh, here I am with my pipe and I'll tell you how, how everything you're doing is wrong. That's not my approach at all. What I want people, you know, to get excited about is what I get excited about, which is learning the craft, which is, you know, sitting down and figuring out a problem and, you know, finding those problems and fixing them less than, oh, I'm such an idiot because I didn't understand what an obligatory scene is. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm after at all. I want people to come to the site and discover things that will excite them to want to know more. And I hope, you know, I want to give them everything I can so that, when the time comes, the the dialogue between the audience and myself can be in, in such a way that I can learn a lot more, too. So that's my approach from the start. And it's clearly working because it's easy to see just from the comment string on each post. It's growing and growing and growing. So th- this site's <laughs> relatively new. And it's only about 20 days old, believe it or not. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I remember the first post, and I don't remember how I, how I learned about it, but I, obviously I hadn't subscribed at that time. Maybe I, I saw something on um, Steve's blog about it, but I popped over, so immediately subscribed. But I'm, I'm certainly one of those people for whom, even if 100% of what's going to be in the book was on the website, I still want the book. I want to be able to flip through the I pages. I think that's true of most people. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't think that's a concern. And, and for those of us who are reading this week after week and taking it and, and using it to look at our own manuscripts and, and seeing places where we might be able to improve things, it's, it's very, very valuable. Well, that's, that's so, so satisfying to hear. You know, it's, it's nice when, when you know how to make a pie and somebody likes the pie. You know? <laughs> it is. <laughs> Let's. Um, you mentioned um, Robert McKee, an association with with Robert McKee. I, I continually reread his book story, and it, the reason yeah. I continue to reread it is because I hope to eventually understand it. When I'm reading, I have to concentrate so hard on what he's saying about this one thing, and then the next chapter, it's it's on to something else. It it gets a little esoteric, but boy, it's a brilliant book. It really is. It's, um, you know, I've, I've known Bob for close to 20 years now. And I, I haven't, I had, I was never his literary agent until I became a literary agent. Prior to that, I was just a fan and I'd gone to his seminars a few times and Steve, uh, Steve Pressfield and I were familiar with Bob and he was kind enough to write an introduction to the war of art, which is Steve's, you know, seminal book Mm -hmm. on, on writing and not not the act of writing so much as you know the emotional strain of writing, which uh, you know is is probably ninety percent of the struggle. Um, I think for for most writers, it's not as Steve says, it's it's not the writing part; it's the getting down, sitting down in the chair that's the hard part. Um, so you know, through Bob, um, you know, I've been I've I my copy of the story is so worn, I've got two or three copies of them. And I know what you mean, Steve, because Bob Bob comes from story from a very intelligent and analytical and uh, studious point of view. The man has been studying story and storytelling for 40, 50 years, you know? And so his, um, his global understanding of story is so immense that um, w- what often happens is when I get into a discussion about 
a certain element is that he'll he'll start he'll you know he'll answer my sentence my question and then he'll go deeper and deeper and deeper until you know I'm at the point where like whoa 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 I, I'm not really sure if I understand what Gilgamesh has to do with you know, <laughs> <laughs> whatever and and he'll you know when I'm having a conversation with him I can stop him and I go oh, oh yeah I, I know what you mean so when I read Bob's book I'm like how can I apply this how can I apply all of this brilliance to telling an ed- a, a writer, because one of the problems of, of an editor and a writer is communication, right? Mm-hmm. You have to be able to, to communicate with a writer without them losing their confidence. That's one of the most difficult things an editor has to learn how to do is the bedside manner when he's saying, hey, you have cancer in your third act, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because... Anybody who's ever written anything can understand how very difficult it is to hear any criticism whatsoever because you immediately take it personally. It's you know you you sweated so much to actually bring the thing out onto the page to begin with that to hear a criticism is very difficult. So what an editor has to do is learn how to direct criticism so that the writer doesn't take it personally. He just says, "Oh, that's the problem." Well, oh, I know how to fix that problem. So it becomes about problems less than you're a terrible writer. So um, so one of the things that Bob has given me um, as my mentor are the global principles that I can say to a writer, look, look, you're going to have to agree with me on this, but if I start to tell you a joke and I say knock-knock, you're going to expect some kind of play on words is the the climax of this joke, right? If I say knock, knock, and you say, who's there? And I Mm -hmm. say, boo, and you say, boo, who? And then I say, don't cry. It's only a knock, knock joke. You're set up for that anticipation of what knock, knock means. And it's the same thing in storytelling. If I say to you, Steve, hey, I've got this great mystery novel that I've just written, all immediately your brain is going to murder, murder. Excellent. I can't wait for this. I wonder who the, you know, the main culprit is. And you've got all of these expectations just from your everyday life of, of, you know, seeing and reading and enjoying stories that if I say to you, yeah, it's a mystery novel, but here's, here's the really fun part. There's no body. (laughs) You're going to go, what? It's not a mystery novel. If nobody gets killed, then where's the mystery? So, um, you know, a lot of people get hung up on genres and conventions and obligatory scenes, but if you explain it to them in a way that makes sense, hey, if you don't have a play on words in your knock-knock joke, it's not a knock-knock joke. People are like, oh, yeah, I get it. So it can be as simple as that, but it also has, there's a lot of, you know, deep holes that you can go down. And one of my jobs as an editor is to stop the, the big plunge down the hole so that, you know, you lose what the actual meaning of, of the principle is. So you have been an editor for years. You mentioned that you're, you're now a literary agent as well, you've, it, and, and you're a publisher. So you've done essentially everything. Let's take, us, take our listeners behind the scenes um, of, of a big-time publisher in New York, and, and let's put your editor hat on. And say an agent brings brings something to you, uh, you know, a, a book by me, for example. We'll, we'll just say that um, someone you've never heard of before. What do you do? 
Okay. Well, um, as, as you mentioned, I do have a long history. I, I did work in uh, major publishing from for a good 12 years as an editor, and I rose to the rank of senior editor at Doubleday, and I was I was responsible for publishing no more than eight books a year. Okay, mm-hmm. so I only had to bring in eight books a year, but each of those eight books was expected to be a bestseller. So there was a, quite a bit of stress in that job, in that I could only pick eight novels a year to publish. And the money, the acquisition money, wasn't really the point. It was really about getting a stable of best-selling writers into the double-day you know, environment that year after year could perform. So this is... Um, this is really the responsibility of a senior executive editor at a major publishing house. So what they're looking for is one of two things. When I was an editor, I looked for one of two things. The first thing would be a proven success. So, for instance, if I knew that, say, uh, Harlan Coben was not happy at his publisher, what I would say to myself is, how can I get to Harlan Coben and his agent to let them know that should the opportunity ever arise, that I would love to work with him? So my job, part of my job, a major part of my job, would be to find the agents of these major, major crime writers. I, I concentrated in crime fiction, thrillers, military fiction, and my nonfiction was sports. I, I ran the sports department. So um, so that was my primary responsibility. Can I bring in a big-ticket writer who's going to sell between 100 to 500,000 hardcover copies a year and in paperback anywhere from 400,000 to a million copies a year? Now, that's a tall order, right? Mm-hmm. So barring the fact that maybe I was able to bring in one of those guys or one of those women, it's usually women, uh, per year, I would have to go out and, and do something called picking your shots. Now, what picking your shots means is to find that young voice, that young thriller or crime writer. And I'm using the word young. It doesn't mean that they have to be 25 years old, although that's an advantage. It's definitely an advantage. Um, so to find those young voices that I can build, meaning not not from... 5,000 copies to 6,000 copies to 10,000 copies to 20,000 copies. My job was to find that book that I could ship at least 50,000 copies on the first novel. Hmm. Now, how many, the, the ability to find seven new voices a year is virtually impossible. And the reason why is this the publisher can only push maybe one writer, one new writer per season into that 50,000 copy distribution. So you've got three seasons in book publishing. You've got fall, you've got winter, and you've got summer. Um, And so, you know, I would have three responsibility of bringing three people into Doubleday each year that could do that. And, and the way I would figure that out would, would be 
um, to follow essentially the movement of the marketplace. And what that means is that when I was when I was around doing this, one of the major genres at the time that was a perennial best-selling category was the legal thriller, right? Mm-hmm. This was John Grisham era. This was, you know, um, Presumed Innocence, Scott Turow. There was Robert Tannenbaum. There were a good seven to nine legal thrillers a year that were making it to the New York Times bestseller lists. So, you know, I would say to myself, look, if a great legal thriller comes in here, I know I can position it such that I can go into Barnes & Noble and they're going to take a 10,000 copy order based upon, you know, the excitement around the book and the writer. And hopefully the writer's a 34-year-old beautiful woman <laughs> or a good-looking guy who, right. you know, is a partner at Wild Gottschall and, you know, is going to blow the lid off of security legal. I don't know. <laughs> but you can kind of see where I'm going right. with this, Steve. Right. So, um, so when somebody says to me, well, what would you do if, if an agent brought a manuscript to you back then? Well, it would depend on who your agent was, right? Because if your agent had a lot of clout in the industry, just buying a manuscript from that agent sometimes is enough to generate enough heat to increase your initial distribution. Now, um, you know, I, I could have another 24-hour conversation with you about the problems with this method, um, and it's one of the reasons why I left big publishing. But this is, you know, is it exactly like this today? Well, I'd like to say it's not, but I think it kind of is probably very much in the same way. Um, all the editors who are making a salary that is commensurate with actually making a living and, and raising a family, these are people who are under a tremendous amount of stress. I know I was at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're under a lot of stress because they need to feed the marketplace. They need to generate the cash. They need to, to get the books out into the marketplace. Now, this doesn't mean that they don't love reading or they don't care about editing or they're just, you know, Sandy Glicks who are trying to make it to the top of the masthead. It just means that the reality of the business is that you've got to perform. And if you don't perform as an editor, there are a million people behind you who want your job. I think a lot of writers, when they finish their novel and they get their agent and their agent's excited to go out with the book and the agent sends it to a big editor and they hear nothing for a long time, they immediately want to string up, you know, the editor in effigy and say, this is a terrible person, they're, they're you know, charlatans, they don't read, they're idiots. And you just kind of, like anything else, you've got to look at it from the other guy's point of view. Fortunately, this isn't the way it is anymore. <laughs> There's opportunities today that I would never have dreamed of when I was publishing back in the 90s and early 2000s. I mean, we're in a very, very young place in book publishing in that there's opportunities for writers today that they never had before. Um, and it's all, you know, it's all internet-based, and it's all about building your audience and being genuine and authentic and working on your craft and building up, 
you know, a fan base of people who actually care about what you write, as opposed to trying to please an agent who's trying to please an editor who's trying to please Barnes & Noble, who's trying to please stockholders. That whole, that whole chain and hierarchy is thankfully becoming less and less important. It's it's interesting though the number of people that still hold that out as the dream and I I, I read something that someone wrote earlier today it was not a one of the the really big publishers but it's kind of a second tier publisher where they got a nice deal with a second tier publisher and then just realized how little that actually meant um, you know we we have this we have this dream that. You know, we're going to become James Patterson, basically. If we if we get this deal, um, you know, we're going to be living in Palm Beach and, and wherever else we want to have a house, and uh, we'll be guest starring on Castle. And it's it's just you know, it's a lightning strike kind of thing in in for most people. Well, that's funny that you mentioned James Patterson because James Patterson, he, I think he bought into that dream back in the nineteen seventies and early nineteen eighties. And he, he published a book called The Thomas Berryman Number, I believe it was called. And it was, the first, it was his first novel. It was a paperback original. Um, and it was published by, you know, a division of Warner Books at the time, I believe. And he was actually nominated for an Edgar Award for that book. And nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So he waited another 15 years before he published his next novel, you better be better believe it. He had a plan because you know what James Patterson did before he became a best-selling writer. He's head of an advertising firm, mm-hmm. Daniel Rubicam. And so James Patterson, before he sold, uh, I think it was Along Came a Spider. He had his agent walk in with him, and he took meetings with every major publisher, and he said, "Look, I'm in advertising. I know how to get people to buy things. If you want to publish my book." you're going to let me run the marketing and you're going to let me run the advertising for my book. And if you don't like it, I don't want to work with you. And guess what happened? The publishers were more than excited to let him do that because he knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And he built Along Came a Spider into a major bestseller and the rest is history. And I'll tell you what, every, every year he wanted to publish one more book. One more book, and his publisher kept saying, "Okay, okay, go ahead. You're gonna, you're, you're really gonna bite into your market, though, James. You're really never. <laughs> you're just spreading yourself too thin. You're spreading yourself too thin." He's like, "Trust mm-hmm. me, trust me, trust me." And today, he publishes what, fifteen, twenty books a year, and they're all major bestsellers. Mm-hmm. He makes hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and the reason why is because James Patterson never ever put all of his eggs into somebody else's basket. He never said, oh, that person is going to make me rich. That person is going to make me a superstar writer. No. He realized after one disappointment, it usually takes people like me, like seven disappointments before I finally get it. But he was smart enough to know, hey, you know what? I, I, can't, I can't play this game. Nobody's going to do it for me except me. And I like publishers. And, you know, if they can get the books out there on the racks, great. I don't want to have to do that. But I'm going to drive my own marketing, my own publicity. And he did. And he's, you know, say all you want about James Patterson, the guy can tell a story. You're, you're you know, right about that. Grabs you. He grabs you. And you don't quit until the book's over. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think James Patterson ever felt that he had it made once he signed a deal with the Long Came a Spider. He just got the work when they, when he signed that deal. 
so writers today can take a take a lesson from that man. Indeed. Ben Patterson does not need Little Brown today to publish his books. He that, does not need Little Brown at all. That's true, and he, and 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 we can all take a lesson from the idea that many, many, many years ago he was out there pitching his own books with his own marketing exactly. campaigns. He actually didn't he pay for some television commercials on his own? All of it. He paid for all of it. He took all the money. He got like a million dollar advance for Along Came a Spider because everybody in town wanted the book because he couldn't put it down. It was a serial killer thriller, thriller with a wonderful, you know, one of, one of the hooks in book publishing is to come up with a series gimmick, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like selling, you know, toothpaste. If he, he came up with this gimmick, oh, I'm going to use fairy tales or, you know, nighttime, bedtime stories as my my hook. So it was Along Came a Spider, Jack and Jill, you know, and on and on and on. But people, that resonates with people, and they're like, oh, that's the guy who writes those things about, you know, <laughs> the fairy tale. And they're really dark but fun books. So, I, you know, I was around when Along Came the Spider was um, was put on submission. And I think his agent at the time was a guy named Richard Pine. And Richard Pine is a terrific agent. He's still around. And he sent it to, you know, every major house. And then he signed, and then he set up meetings. And um, that's how it worked. And so I, I don't know where this all leads to, Steve. But well, I, I, I think I, it, I can... I think it leads. It, I think it leads to, and that was that was a really a great story. So I, I did not want to. I did not want to stop that because it was. It, it it's so because there's this sense that if we just get the big deal, we don't have to do anything, and we can be oh, like no. James Patterson. And that's not the case, regardless of, of of whether you get the big deal, the small deal. You self publish. It's mostly on you. And you need to be able to go out and promote your work. You need to have a platform. You need to have an email list. You need to have these things to sell your books. And you can't rely on your publisher, your agent, or Amazon, or anybody to sell your books. You have to be able to go out and do this on your own. And it's exactly what you're doing with your website Mm -hmm. and your email list. And your RSS subscriptions and, and people like me who are, who are coming and signing up and getting this, getting interested. And then when the book comes out, it's an easy sell for us. Um, that, that's something that it seems like it's easier for a nonfiction author to do than a fiction author. Do you have any thoughts on that? I think for, for fiction, you know, if somebody were to ask my advice about it, I would say the first question you have to ask yourself is, who, who's going to read my book? What's my genre? How do I find those people who enjoy my genre? Are there particular places that I can talk, you know, I can reach where they'll actually care about what I'm writing about? And it's just like, you know, the things that I'm writing about on, on storygrid.com, I know I have a limited audience and there's, there's, but I also know that it's a dedicated audience and it's an audience that, tells, shares information, right? Mm-hmm. So the last thing I would do, and a lot of people ask me this, because I published um, I published a book that I wrote with, with Chad Millman, who's the uh, head of ESPN magazine. And we wrote a book that was kind of a hybrid book that was a lot of fun, which was about the rise of the Pittsburgh Steelers and the fall of the steel industry in the 1970s in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. And we, we got a group, I have a great agent named uh, Richard Abate, 
Gould for Three Arts Entertainment, which is a huge L.A. agency. And Richard got us an amazing advance, and we published the book with the division of Penguin Books. And you know what? It did okay. It was it was it hit the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, and that was nice. But you know, it, it's not really moving anymore. I mean, people aren't really buying it anymore. And I don't think it's because it's a bad book. I think it's because Chad and I didn't have a built-in audience of people who cared about what we were writing, and we're we're not still talking to them. So when when Steve Steve Pressfield and I were talking about Story Grid. I said, you know what, Steve, the last thing I want to do is to publish the story grid with a major publisher, in a top five publisher. Now, I could definitely get a deal with one of them. I know them all, and they would all say, oh, this is a great backlist book, and we'll give you, you know, X number of dollars for it, and we'll put a big push on it, and it'll be great. But the reality is, is that if I did do that deal, what would happen was, the first thing they would say is, Sean, you can't give away any of the book on your website. <laughs> And I'd go, oh, come on. And I'd go, okay, well, you can give away 1,500 words. And then the rest of the time, you have to be plowing pitches to anybody who goes there about how they should buy your book. And so it would completely destroy anything I could build with an audience, right? Mm -hmm. Because the audience would be suspicious of somebody who's constantly not showing a telling. Like, if you go buy my book, you will get this. <laughs> Instead of, hey, here's what I do. And read it. And if you like it, you know, I've got it bound up together in one place that you can buy yourself. But if you don't want to do that, and you just want to keep reading my stuff and you enjoy it, well, you know, there's nothing I can do about that. But at least tell your friends to buy my book, too. You know, whatever, whatever that is. Um, but that's not the philosophy at the major publishing houses. Their, their belief is that anything you give away for free is never coming back. Now, Steve Pressfield and I started, as you mentioned earlier, Steve, we started a small publishing company a few years ago called Black Irish Books. Mm -hmm. And the reason why we did was because we were in the throes of major marketing issues. I'm being nice here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, arguments with Steve's previous publisher. For all the reasons that I just mentioned, Steve was publishing a new novel. Steve and I wanted to do all kinds of fun marketing things, and the publisher kept saying, no, 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 no. And, you know, what we thought was, you know, the more people who read the book, the more people are going to buy it, because we believed in the book, right? We believed that the book was that good that if somebody read it, they wouldn't be able to help themselves but to tell somebody else to buy it, too. And that's our philosophy behind Black Irish Books. So three years ago, we said, you know what, let's forget about these big publishers for a while. Let's just put our, you know, our theory to test. So the first book we published was a book called The Warrior Ethos. And it's basically Steve's philosophical look at what it means to be a warrior in not only in contemporary society, but throughout time. And he uses all of the deep knowledge that he has about ancient Greece and ancient Rome and the Spartans. And it's this really wonderful book that, that you know, talks about what it means to fight for your country or fight for your brothers or whatever. It's all about being a warrior. And it's a small little book. It's maybe 120 pages. So we said to ourselves, who would want to buy this book? Who would care, right? 
And we figured guys who were serving and women who were serving in the military would care. So what we did is we called in every favor that we had, and we found, you know, you know, lieutenant colonels in the in the Marine Corps and Camp Pendleton in in California, and we found all of these people around the country and in Afghanistan and in Iraq who said, "We've we've got this thing that Steve Pressfield wrote, and we want to give it to you for free. Where do we ship them?" And so we printed ten thousand copies and we shipped them. And guess what? Everybody loved it and they wanted more. So. Steve and I printed some more, and we shipped those. And then we put it on sale, and we figured, you know what? We did a good deed. We lost a little bit of money. It's going to be okay. These guys love the book. You know, let's see if somebody else will buy it. So we put it on Amazon. We put it on all the usual suspects of distribution channels for books. And guess what happened? The first month, we sold 12 copies. The second month, we sold about 36. Third month, we sold about 52. But now we sell about a thousand copies a month, and it's all because of that generosity at the very beginning. It's all about getting people to read the book. If you believe in the book and you love the book, your job as a publisher is to get people to read it. And my number for a publisher is a publisher's job to get ten thousand people to read a book. Now that means. If you have to give away 10,000 copies to every Rotary Club, I mean 10,000 total to Rotary Clubs or, you know, knitting clubs or knitting circles or, or you know, people who follow hot rods, that's your job. Because if you believe in the book, you should believe enough to market it by giving it away. Now, the major publishers don't want to do that, and they never will do that because they they dump loads of money on books to publish them, and the, all they want to do is get that money back. The first thing they want to do is they want to get all that money back. Mm-hmm. Now, Steve and I don't offer advances, and we don't really want to work with anybody who's looking for us to write a million-dollar check to publish them, because that's not what we're in it for. We're not, you know, we're not, we're not quitting our day jobs running Black <laughs> Irish books. But we do it because we care about the books that we published, and we have one major requirement for anything that we publish in Black Irish books. And it's got to be about the inner war. And when I say the inner war, it's about the thing that's the subject of the war of art and turning pro and most of everything that Steve writes in nonfiction. And the inner war is that thing that we all fight to be able to do the things that we're supposed to do. So for you, Steve, it's writing and so what you do to fight that fight is you do podcasts and you write every day and you work hard. And I'm sure it's not easy to do. I'm sure it wasn't that much fun to say to yourself, oh, I got to call Sean Coyne today and listen to him harp on for two hours. But you did it. And so that's what it's about. <laughs> it's about getting, raising the energy and the caring to fight that inner war. So. You know, I, I know you, you asked me a while back whether, you know, what was the why behind Black Irish Books. That's the simple why. That's the only thing that, that drives us. One of the things I, I noticed, and I remember, I, I actually bought a copy of The Warrior Ethos, and I bought it, I think, through your website because I, I have the audio book and the, uh, the physical book. And so I, I probably wow. bought some kind of package and I have two sons that are Marines. And uh, Callie, I can't pronounce her last name, but Callie offered Odinger, to send me yeah. free books when she found that I had 
two books that were marine or two two boys that were marines to to give to the boys. And you know, oh, following absolutely. up with your story of getting getting people to read these. But anyway, um, you guys were among the very first to begin selling your books in different formats on your own website. Yes. That's sort of a courageous thing to do, and I think I, I may have this wrong, but it seems like I, I remember reading some stuff that when it first started, it maybe didn't go as smoothly as, as you thought, and, um, you know, it, 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 the problems were ironed out over time, but, you, you know, you throw your hat over the wall, you figure out how to solve the problem, and now you're selling books on your website in addition to all the, the different locations where you can sell them. That's right. That's right. And I think um, you bring up something really important there, Steve, and that, that is, you know what, you, you got to do it. You, you just got to. And when Steve and, and Callie Ottinger, who you mentioned before, mm-hmm. Callie does all of our marketing and she's, she's the one who holds everything together. So, you know, I can't believe I, I haven't mentioned her before. So I'm glad you did. Um, she's really um, gold. So, yeah, you're right. When we started Black Irish Books, we started it as an online store. And a lot of people said, well, why are you investing so much money in building an online store for books that don't really, you know, it's not like we're selling James Patterson stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason why we did it is we said to ourselves, look, what, what, is the, what, is, what is book publishing really? What's it all about? And when you really break everything down, you know, throw away this this argument between Amazon and Hachette, throw away, you know, big five versus secondary markets versus small publishers versus self-publishing versus blah, blah, blah. What publishing is, it's a connection, right? It's a writer and a reader. That's it. That's all there is. So anybody who gets in between the writer and the reader isn't really creating much value beyond you know, serving as a middleman to get the reader to understand that the writer's book is available or, you know, making it easy for the commerce to happen. So if it's a store, it's a brick-and-mortar store, they, you know, they have the shelves in the store and you can walk in and buy the book. Or online, you can just click. If you were to take this theory to the end of the line, so really all you need is a writer and a reader in order to have book publishing, quote-unquote. So if you're going to be a writer and you want to reach readers, wouldn't it be better if you could allow that reader to buy directly from you? Because there's a reason, Steve, why you bought the, your book from us and not from Amazon. Yes, and there the was a very clear reason, it, yeah. Yeah, the reason why you did it is you wanted to support us. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you paid, you probably paid an extra couple of bucks for the shipping and everything than you could have for Amazon. Mm-hmm. But you did it because you're like, well, I'm going to pay $14 when I could pay 10 at Amazon, but those guys are going to use that money to put out more books, and that could be helpful. And if they go away, then you know the thing that they're doing that I kind of like will go away too. And it's that kind of like helping one another that the Amazons of the world and Hachette, Hachette, you know, all this talk about how evil Amazon is, Hachette's no prince either, you know? <laughs> they're, they're not giving away 85% of the revenue to their writers. Like, trust me, you know? I've, um, you know, it's like sort of like which exploitation would the writer like 
better? Would they like to be exploited by Amazon or Hesha? Mm -hmm. It's not to say that neither one of them do a job. They do, but you have to know, you have to be willing to pay the price of what they do and understand the price of what they do. I'm just saying, all I'm saying is the bottom line is there's only a writer and there's only a reader. If you have a reader who loves your stuff and they can buy directly from you, facilitate it. Because you know what? They're going to appreciate buying directly from you and they're going to feel good about it. So that's an added value that you're giving them as opposed to them buying your remaindered book out of a rack at Barnes & Noble in Saskatchewan. And it helps to cement the relationship between you and your reader because now they're communicating with you. They, they bought the book yeah. from you. And it's not that hard. I mean, when you guys did this, it was a little harder. You had to build the store to, to, to yeah. sell books on the store. You don't have to do that anymore. There are plugins you can use to stick on your website and you can pay, you know, three to six percent to somebody and they'll do all this for you. And, you know, you can just sell your books directly to your readers and, and, and build that relationship. And then you're not reliant upon someone else to sell your books because things change. That's true. And Seth Godin's doing this right now. I mean, Seth is sort of the godfather of permission marketing. And mm -hmm. he came up with the, the concept. And, you know, he sees, he's been seeing 10 years down the road for the last 20 years. Um, and, you know, he just, he just, for his latest book, he just did a pre-order and I bought my copy. I, you know, and it'll show up in like four weeks. But I know when it's Seth's thing, he's put his blood and his guts into that book and I want to see it. You know, so we're not talking about anything that's new, but the energy and um, I got to tell you, with the global world, too, Steve, you can have you can have fans all over the world who can buy your ebooks from you, and you don't have to worry about shipping things to Indonesia. Yeah, you know? Sean, it, you have been very generous with your time today, and if, if for people listening to this, you can see that Sean thinks deeply about all of these things, and he writes the same way that he talks at his website, storygrid.com. You can also find him at stephenpressfield.com. It's uh, S-T-E-V-E-N-P-R-E-S-S-F-I-E-L-D.com, right? That's correct. Yeah. Okay, and I'll link to these. Is there any place else that, uh, that you would like people uh, to be able to follow you, uh, social media or anything, or is the best place just through storygrid.com and sign up for that email list? Uh, just for storygrid.com, I haven't even figured out Facebook yet, so <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna throw in the towel on that. Okay, well I, I can tell people that uh, it it is a it's a wonderful thing to get an email from StoryGrid in the morning and know that you're going to have something that's inspiring and instructive that you can read as a way to start your day, and it, it's something that will help you. So I, I am really looking forward to the book coming out. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned when it's coming out. Uh, I can't wait. I will continue to read this. I hope that everyone that's listening will do the same. Well, thanks so much, Steve. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the AuthorBiz podcast at www.theauthorbiz.com. If you'd like to find out more about the show or anything we mentioned, just check out the website. You can also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. If you have comments or suggestions, please leave them at the site, or you can email me at authorbiz at gmail.com. Please join us again next week for another informative episode.